Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience, where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not, and I heard your telephone. Yeah, we should <laughs> should we go back and redo it? No, it's fine. Keep going. Sometimes life interrupts. Who's texting you? Uh, that would be my lovely partner. Okay. They went to Trader Joe's. Oh, good. Oh. Anything good? Chocolate hummus or anything weird? Uh, apparently she picked up the eucalyptus and immediately put it back down and walked out. She had little people with her. Yes. Yeah. So. Sometimes you, sometimes you gotta go. Right. Yep. Gotta go. Gotta go. How are you this week? I'm wonderful. I uh, attended a mouse funeral. I know. Earlier today, in fact. Um, and it was very moving. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, we uh, found a fire. We found a mouse the day mm-hmm. it was born. And nursed it for about five days before it passed away. Mm. And by we, I mean two little people in my life who hope to be vets. And they did a phenomenal job. So yeah. it was a celebration of life there we more go. than anything. Yeah. It was wonderful. And so. it was Leslie the mouse, is that Leslie correct? the mouse. I love that. Yeah. That's R. sweet. I had a um, one time when I was doing horseback riding... I went to go visit my grandma for like two weeks out of the summer. Mm-hmm. And I, we did horseback riding lessons in the mountains one summer or whatever and one time one one day i spent probably half of our three hour expensive horseback riding session burying a bird listen the if you don't have a story like this from your childhood <laughs> what are you doing what are you doing do you have pets now yeah <laughs> it's really the question yeah um no we found a flying squirrel when I was a kid. You found a flying squirrel? Yeah. What? I think it was a flying squirrel. Like we found a squirrel. Are they are they supposed to be outside here? I have no idea. But I've been telling people this story for years, so I really hope it was actually a flying squirrel. <laughs> yeah. It but was we, Icarus himself. We kept a we kept him in a box in the garage and I assume he finally passed away. He's I don't st- no, he's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> he was released back into the wild uh-huh. and is living his healthiest life. He went to a farm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all animal lovers, right? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Dolly's getting a lion cut soon. She looks crazy. But She's so cute. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, she'll be like a hybrid, a long-haired cat, hairless cat hybrid for a minute. Mm-hmm. You Which know. really goes back to her roots, anyway. Best of both worlds. Her brethren. Her brethren. Yeah. We've got too many animals at our house right now. I know. You've got kittens. We do. We also found a stray, and the stray ended up being pregnant, and we had four kittens. Oh, my God. So, if anyone would like a kitten, by the time this comes out, they should be ready to rehome. Good. Perfect. I Slide think, into actually, these DMs. Slide into the DMs if you want a kitten, three girls, one boy, or a mama cat that we will also not be keeping. God, you're a saint. Oh. I had a cat that I found at in college when I was going to UNCG. I would go back home to my parents' house during the summer, uh-huh. and I would visit my friends at UNC Charlotte, and there was a, a, a black cat that was just like roaming this apartment complex so i decided i would take him home my parents were pissed oh yeah (laughs) um but he stayed in the garage for a while and we called him tick tick nipples (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) i don't remember why um and then yeah and then he got rehomed 
Oh, mm-hmm. that's sweet. Yeah. So I hope, I hope, shout out to you. Shout out to Tick Tick Nipples. Yeah. That's the best cat name I think yeah. I've heard yeah. in a minute. Um, when I was a kid, we had Hugs and Kisses were the names of our two cats. Cute. And then Hugs and Kisses had babies. And obviously, I was very lovey-dovey at the time. Mm-hmm. So, right, because you're such a monster now. <laughs> right. So I named two of the kittens Snuggle Bunny and Crybaby. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> and then Jacob named one of them Sporty. Oh, my God. So we had five cats for a hot minute. Wow. But I thought Hugs and Kisses as a, like, parent couple yeah. name was a really cute name. Yeah, that's cute. Um, my parents would have never gone for for keeping the kittens. Never. No. So here's here was my strategy okay. in my brain at the time was I knew that kittens could not be separated from their mom too early. So about the time my mom was like, listen, we've got to start looking for homes for these kittens. I was like, it's too soon. It's too soon. You can't separate them yet. Oh. And this went on for way too long. <laughs> and then we got to this point where the kittens were like almost six months old. And I looked at my mom and was like, they're too old now. No one's going to want them. <laughs> did you keep them? We kept all three of them. Yeah, Shut we did. Up. Mm-hmm. Hugs ran away. So we still had kisses and then the three kittens. Mm. And we had kisses. They got divorced. Yeah, they got divorced. Uh, he left. Wow. Um, Typical. Kisses stayed with my dad until like 2020. Oh, she um, was 19 or 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. She was a great cat. I love that. I know. Every time um, they always ask you animal questions for your password stuff. Uh-huh. You know, I just gave away my answers. <laughs> <laughs> I always have to think about, they're like, what was your first pet? And I'm like, Do, uh, are we counting like the goldfish and the right. newt and the partridge in the pear tree how would past me have answered that question which animal was i most like mm-hmm. you know connected mm-hmm. to the day i answered this you just question. did the italian fingers when you said i that. did most Thank connected most to, connected to. <laughs> forget about it yeah so like we had two dogs when i was born and i know generally speaking like my first pet which i consider to be my first because one was very old and the other was a puppy mm-hmm. but um yeah, it's just like, you know, who did I feel connected to the day I answered this question? Exactly. We had a goldfish that lived for like six years. Holy shit. Yeah. No, you did not. Yeah. Like I a Walmart his, goldfish. Like a goldfish. I think his name was Goldie. I think. Mm. If not, you were really what missing an opportunity there. Name? I'm going to text my mom. You should. She's going to be like, God, that's <laughs> fucking fish. Nancy, what? What was the name of that goldfish we had forever? Stay tuned for the answer. I know everyone's dying to know about the goldfish I had 20 years ago. So, something really sweet. We were re-watching Harry Potter 7 Part Mm 1 with Slughorn. No, 6 with Slughorn. Mm -hmm. And he's telling the story of the student who gave him a fish. Mm -hmm. And it was a flower petal that like as it fell like turned into a fish and it was beautiful magic and you're like you can just see the love in his eyes and he was like that was your mother lily who gave me this sweet gift and i like have seen this movie a million times and still like teared up at the oh oh he had so much affection for harry's mom and she gave him a fish yeah it's also kind of weird because she was a student but that's okay yeah i mean showing off your magic what was its name stripey Stripey, Stripey the goldfish. 
She had so much confidence, too. She put a period at the end. Stripey. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. That's so what good. A good name. I'm sweaty almost. <laughs> that is so good. Oh, my God. Speaking of good things, psychology and history are fucking awesome. They're so cool. And I know we said this last week or some Did other we? week. Recently. But next week, we are going to be announcing the name of our season two recipes the cocktail names and we're going to be drinking them yes not all of them at the same time no we're going to pick a signature one for the episode yep oh we should do a signature one oh i love it okay cool. okay yeah we're doing that okay we're setting that in stone um we're not going to talk about what's actually in them because you know but we can like give you a uh, overview like a palette and you can kind of tell yeah so in some of them yeah, um, at least one of the names is the dead giveaway. Two. Two of them. Two yep. of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. But, um, yeah, so so we're excited for that. But in the meantime, let's talk about some psychology and history. Yeah, so I guess I go first. I guess right? so. Is that how that works? Every once in a while, I feel like we need a little reminder. Can I tell you, I was listening to or uploading like our most recent cult episode Mm -hmm. and in my brain i just had this moment of oh my gosh did Allie actually go first in our recent cult episode Mm -hmm. because i couldn't remember you actually going first so i had to go back and like re-listen to it i think i did you did yeah yes you did it was just a moment because i didn't actually remember you going first it's okay thanks for life is weird getting them out of me so go check out that cult episode too Anyways, have you noticed that psychology is a little weird? What do Freud, Lil Albie, Mm. shout out to season one, lobotomies, conversion therapy, Operation Midnight Climax, Willie M, and the Stanford Prison Experiment, oh, as well as the DSM, have in common? They were all topics in season one. They were all topics in season one. And um, they also have one thing in common with pretty much every other psychology topic we will talk about. In fact, most psychology and social science in general has one thing in common. Mm. The participants in the studies are overwhelmingly Western, educated, and from industrialized, rich, and democratic countries. They're weird. Oh, I love an acronym. Me too. So W is for Western, E is for educated, I is for industrialized, R is for rich, and D is for democratic. Hmm. Also, they are overwhelmingly college students in the U.S., and historically, they are alarmingly male. Yes. Uh, But still weird for sure. Want to know what else is weird? Hmm. This realization in psychology as a whole did not happen until 2010. Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, we could have told you that. I'm pretty right. sure we did tell them that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we've talked about it on this podcast. I'm pretty sure that that's like, you know, psychology 101, like in, in universities across the world. I'm sure right. that that's being discussed every day. So in 2010, there seemed to be this mass realization that not all humans are like North American college students. Weird. Right? The assumption used to be that humans share some of the fundamentals in terms of like cognition, behavior, biology, and emotion, which seems logical, except from the research, we tend to extrapolate that there are universal truths. So why do we need to study and validate other populations? Here's the issue. This is going to get really interesting, I promise. I just have to get through like the first, you know, couple paragraphs first. Got it. Okay. So here's the issue. 
According to brain and behavioral sciences anthropologist Dr. Joe Henrick and Dr. Stephen Hine and Dr. Ara Norenzagen, uh, they found that people from Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, weird societies represent as much as 80% of study participants, but only reflect about 12% of the world's population. In fact, not only are, there, um, are they not representative of humans as a whole, but according to their research on many issues, the people that are being studied, like this 80%, they're actually outliers. Oh. Which theoretically could change pretty much everything we know about psychology and have studied wow. about psychology. Wow, that's wild. So I gave it a goog. And since the fall of the Iron Curtain, the following countries are generally accepted as the Western world. So what is this 12%? It is the U.S., obviously, Canada, the countries in the European Union, the U.K., Norway, Iceland, Switzerland, and then large parts of Australia and New Zealand, Mm -hmm. um, sans the indigenous populations. Right. So something that doesn't make it into the weird acronym is the participant's age. But we're going to talk more about it. According to one article, quote, 67% of American psychology studies use college kids. This means that many or even most of the subjects are teenagers. Right. So oh, we talked about this. Big with dumb this. nerds. Right. Like they're using college professors are using college students to validate their research. Right. And we don't see any problem with this. We're going to talk about why that's an issue. Their brains aren't developed. Exactly. Your prefrontal cortex doesn't finish developing until like 24 to 27, I think. Oh, my God. Imagine what idiots we were in high school. Oh, in in college. college. Are you kidding? Right? Like, we didn't know anything. No, I didn't know shit about shit. Still don't. We were impulsive. Mm -hmm. Remember that hat party? (laughs) (laughs) We Things we will not be talking about. (laughs) Um, But a hat party may or may not have happened. Mm -hmm. Around your 20th birthday? 21st birthday? 21st birthday? Yeah. Was it? It was when I came back from South Africa. Yeah. 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 So, um, this means that many or even most of the subjects are teenagers, which has big consequences for behavior. Most neural development took place before or during adolescence, but by the time you're 18, you are not magically stagnant and fully developed. Mm -mm. You're just not. No. So one example of this is how adolescents and college students differ in risk evaluation compared to adults. I don't know about you, but I made much riskier decisions at that point in my life than I would today. Mm -hmm. To be fair, you were still flying airplanes. I am still flying airplanes. And you were then too. And I was then too, yes. Um, However, today I would now know better than to like hang out with people who are skinny dipping at a lake and right. then run from the police. Correct. For example. Right. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> that is not a decision I would make today. Anymore. Right. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. So adolescents and college students um, are also much more sensitive to reward than fully developed human beings. So it's easy to see how this could impact some of the outcomes. In 2020, Professor Joseph Henrik at Harvard, who is not rated on Rate My Professor, published a book called The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. Mm. Would you like to say that five times fast? (laughs) Which aims to explain history and psychological variation, blah, blah, blah. 
simple and easy peasy, but basically the first part of the book he discusses is how people live in weird cultures tend to think about their personal attributes and intentions. We're more trusting of strangers and even more likely, for example, to give blood than most humans. However, Asian cultures tend to think more holistically with a focus on relationships and situations. There's emphasis on family connections and allegiances. For example, Westerners tend to identify as member of voluntary social groups, like... Mm, yeah, that you, know, you, that you choose. Right, like, I, you might identify or connect yourself with artists or Democrats or Republicans or whatever. Then extended clans or, like, family lineage. Right, right. Which brings us to the myopic characteristics of Western or psychology research. Uh, myopic basically means nearsighted, but in this instance, it's another acronym, and it's more nuanced. So here's the issue with the weird psychology. And we're going to get into examples to bring it all together. So the M stands for materialist, which means that in weird cultures, which is just a fun acronym. I know. I can't, it's so well, great. Before, I got confused but then i remembered it's an acronym yeah so weird westernized educated industrialized rich and democratic mm -hmm. countries um does that include the democratic people's Repub the democratic republic people's uh, korea what i fucked that up <laughs> <laughs> it was a joke korea <laughs> So weird countries and cultures tend to be more materialist, valuing material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual value, which is obviously contrary to like much of the world. Mm -hmm. So we tend to place a lot of connection to emotions and things mm -hmm. rather than connecting to a spiritual or spiritual relationship with the natural world. Weird cultures tend to be young. We've talked some about adolescence, but Western people tend to live in a suspended state of adolescence that can stretch well into your 30s. Oh, I totally get that. Right? 100%. God, now that you say that, it's so clear. Yeah, exactly. There's an obsession with being young, first of all. Right. And I think that the, the, the maturity is not there. No, it's not. And it's not bred in us to be. Yeah. There's not the societal norm to move out yeah exactly so m many other cultures and societies not only are having families at younger ages which seems to like propel you into maturity in mm -hmm. some ways but also like they're supposed to be able to have more responsibility at younger ages and you know they're controlling their lives more effectively in some ways at younger ages interesting the western mind tends to be more self-obsessed so that's the O in myopic. Yeah. So materialist, young, self-obsessed O. The Western mind, when objectively observed, is fairly narcissistic and has difficulty respecting others' traditions until they have been proven by scientific methods. Oh, shit. Right? Fuck. I told you this gets more interesting. Yeah. Like, the more you unpack it and see how, like, this, the people we're studying are this is this crowd mm -hmm. like they're materialistic and young and self-obsessed mm -hmm. and i'll finish the acronym in a second but the more you start to unpack that you see the impact that this has like on so many other people around the world yeah and other cultures i remember do you like do you remember those conversations you would have with people like you you've been in you've got one semester of college underneath your belt mm -hmm. and you think you're so fucking smart 
Yes. So you start having these philosophical conversations with other people, which is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Right. But you're just so fucking stupid. Like, everyone is <laughs> so dumb literal. still. And yep. you think you are such hot shit. <laughs> I had this conversation with this guy who went bald at a very early age, and I was really happy about it. Um, but we were we were talking, it was in Charlotte, and he was just so arrogant. And I was like, dude, you go to fucking community college in Asheville. You've had three classes so far. Right. Like, you don't know any more than the rest of us. Like, calm down. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that level of like, oh shit, I lost my train of thought. But you're right. The as soon as you get into a school system um, or higher education in any way, you you do get to this like, I I heard is the um, Mount Stupid oh. is the way that one social scientist phrased it. But like you know, just enough to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the example, this is a tangent. But the example that was given in the book about Mount Stupid was that um, residents in hospitals about whenever they are like released to go and perform surgeries Mm -hmm. actually end up killing a lot more people. So I think it's like June or July. Yeah. So there's this influx of people who are dying, but it's because they are so arrogant that they think they know everything. Mm -hmm. And then like they get to the top of the hill of Mount Stupid and then they realize, oh, shit. I don't know anything. And then you fall off because then you're like, okay, I actually have a lot more to learn. Yeah. And then you build like legitimate confidence Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not just perceived confidence. Right. Yeah. There's theory and then there's like it in practical. Exactly. Everyday use. Yeah. 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 Speaking of that, just while we're tangenting. Sure. So Ray Sun was here for Easter and he was like, you know, I just, I don't think that um, The Lion King is is the best Disney movie. We were all like, what? What? Who is this kid? And yeah. then, and we, I was like, well, tell me why. And he does this whole list. And we had this like really healthy debate about whether, you know, why he felt the way that he did. He's like, sure. I just feel like there are movies that are better paced and like have other, you know, qualities that, you know, I like better. And... It was a really good critical huh. thinking moment for him. Yeah. So we were really trying to like encourage him. For sure. But also be like, kid, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did he have a Disney movie that he preferred over The Lion King? Um, you know, I can't remember exactly. He did, but I don't remember what they were off the top of my okay. head. Newer ones, though. Like every time we want to watch an older movie, like I remember as a kid, like you never want to watch the stuff your parents were watching because right. it's so old and ancient. Yeah. yeah. So. No, I feel a little bit of joy every time we get my partner's kids to watch anything mm-hmm. that I grew up watching. Like, we watched The Borrowers not too long ago. Mm-hmm. It was so cute. Yeah. But it was definitely, like, made in the early 90s. Yeah. And you could tell. Oh, yeah. The CGI is questionable. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Materialist. Young. Self-obsessed. Pleasure-seeking is number four so weird cultures especially like young folks tend to pursue pleasure and avoid pain this comes in more relevant later but it seems like a pretty obvious one to us yeah or consequences right yeah absolutely which is different than non-weird cultures which are not necessarily avoiding pain or pursuing pleasure in the same way Interesting. We tend to be more isolated compared to the rest of the world. Uh, we tend to spend more time in our age group cohorts rather than intergenerational communication or um, time spent 
with people of various age groups. We are more consumerist, and we largely form our identities through consumer... Western identities are largely formed through consumer identities. Yeah. You are what you have, right? Exactly. Like, like your if style, you own a Tesla... You're, then you're a Tesla person. Right. Exactly. And then number seven, so myopics, uh, is sedentary. So most people in highly developed countries spend over 90% of their time indoors and most of that time sitting and staring at screens. Oh, that's exactly what I did today. Yeah, me too. I I walked the dog and I came back and I sat on my ass. Yep. And I watched Netflix. Oh, I did some notes though. I did sit on the porch. Oh, good. So you were out. Yeah, I did my notes on the porch. Good. But I was sedentary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So if you take all of this into consideration, weird participants may be the worst population to base our understanding of all humans, right? Um, If you're at a university, you are 4,000 times more likely to participate in a psychological study than any other person. Yeah. Makes sense. So would you like some examples of the direct impact of all this? Duh. I figured. Okay. I've got three for you. So researchers were doing this weird study, weird in like the acronym way, but also it's a weird ass study (laughs) about the impact of how you lost your virginity and your impact and the uh, later impact on your sex life. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. Right. Okay. So it's just traumatic for everyone. Except that's not what they found. Oh, yeah. So a recent study showed that your sexual sexual well-being today has a lot to do with how you enjoyed losing your virginity, how much you enjoyed losing your virginity. Interesting. Now, here's the problem. Researchers wanted to have like a pretty specific sample group because they wanted to eliminate like variations, okay. right? So they eliminated from the sample anyone whose first exposure to sex involved force. Yep. Fair. Yeah. And they eliminated anyone who did not have sexual intercourse currently. Okay. Okay. So what they were left with was a completely homogeneous group of heterosexual college students who, according to research, had only lost their virginity two years before. (laughs) God, they're so experienced. (laughs) (laughs) So, for two weeks only, now keep in mind, this is now a a published study that's talking about your connection to your virginity versus how you experience sex now. And it's like, high correlation. Newsflash. Newsflash. If you enjoyed losing your virginity, you probably have a great sex life. As if we need any more pressure on that first time, right? (laughs) I just can't imagine. I I just feel like everyone's (laughs) first time is a fucking nightmare. Theoretically, it is. Right. But also at two years in, like if you've only been having sex for two years and you've had multiple partners, mm-hmm. like sometimes it's still awkward. Yeah. Like you're still figuring things yeah. out. A hundred percent. I mean, unless maybe you started dating someone, lost your virginity and are still dating that person and now have an amazing sex life. I imagine it was still kind of awkward at first. But yeah. Oh, yeah. But if you're still with them, then you're enjoying it. So you're probably, like, tainted into thinking that first time was great. Yeah. If you have nothing to... That's why you you don't... You taste the milk before you buy the cow or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So for two weeks, the entire study is based on this two weeks. They kept intimate relations diaries. Oh, my God. For the 300 participants. Did they write George Bush poetry, too? (laughs) (laughs) Probably. 
Um, and they, in these two weeks, experienced a total of 639 encounters. So a little over two encounters per person in okay. two weeks. A little over two and a half hand stuff. 2.3 something. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hand stuff. <laughs> Um, from that, they concluded that sexual satisfaction in the present was strongly affected by how you lost your virginity and the effects of how you lost your virginity could persist for years to come. This is self-reported, mind you. Meaning the exaggeration or covering things up could come into play. We already talked about that a little bit. And there's cultural influences. So, Mm -hmm. like, we don't know about men versus women. um, But we know that, like, men are like encouraged to go and have sex whereas women are kind of shamed for having sex mm-hmm. you're approved if you hadn't haven't had sex in a slut if you have but like it doesn't take into consideration any of the nuance of that but why does this matter it's a study about sex first we know that the idea of virginity is largely a social construct especially the value we place on it mm-hmm. right But we're also highlighting the importance of that first experience even further now with quote-unquote scientific research based on college students. Right. And if you've only had two partners, like, you you don't know how good it is until you get far enough away from it where you can reflect on it. Right, exactly. And also, who's to say that we're doomed to have a uh, poor sex life if your first time was awful? Mm -hmm. Like, there's just not enough data and research across a long enough span of time. That's one example. Yep. But you can see how this, like, scientific research makes it into, you know, different parts of life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to talk about one that we have actually done on the podcast before. Oh, shit. The Stanford Prison Experiment. Oh, yeah. Problematic, right? Yeah. We talked about how problematic it was. We absolutely did. And by we, I mean you. Great job. Thank you so much. Um, So as a reminder for those of you who listened to it a long time ago... Um, there were men who signed up for two roles, one as a prison guard um, and one as a prisoner. There were multiple men in the actual experiment, um, and it was held at Stanford. So I, a lot was given away in the name there. Um, <laughs> so uh, the participants ended up acting in accordance with each role, but to the extreme, including like police brutality. Right. So this is relying heavily on some of the things, the myopic things that we talked about. So um, the Western culture is being more self-obsessed, pain avoidant, young, and isolated. How all of that wired the brains of the um, participants in the Stanford prison experiment. Like, how does that change the outcome when the people who were participating, who I think were also all white. Mm -hmm, They were. Like, if that had happened in another culture, in another community, with any different, um, you know, intersectional identities at play, what would have been the outcome? And the reason that we now ask this question is if you think about police brutality now and the Black Lives Matter, like, what, what human attributes have we, like, assigned to people based on the Stanford prison experiment that may or may not be true? Interesting. Yeah. So the truth is that this is not and cannot be a representative of a human response is basically what it boils down to. Non-weird counterparts in many studies demonstrate differences across the spectrum of ideas, including visual perception, fairness, spatial and moral reasoning, conformity, and memory. Hmm. So, like, there are all these huge drastic changes from culture to culture 
And yet we do this one experiment, the Stanford prison experiment, which is an unethical experiment to begin with, but then say that's how humans function. Right. And then we let people kind of get away with things because that's human nature. When it's not human nature, it's the nature of the participants of the study. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's my last example. This one's about physical responses. We generally tend to assume that how our pupils dilate is pretty universal, right? Like Mm -hmm. you go out into the sun and your pupils get smaller um, to take in less light. Mm -hmm. And then you go into a darker space and they, you know, uh, get bigger so that you can take in more light. Mm -hmm. Well, um, a study comparing European and Moken children, which is um, a chain of islands in Asia, in a sea in Asia, found that European kids' pupils widen when underwater, while the Moken children's pupils constrict to improve their vision. Weird. Right? That makes sense. So they do it because children live in this community live in a semi-nomadic life based on the sea. So they need to visually be able to focus to perform underwater tasks like foraging food. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So even like these very basic biological principles that we thought were universal actually aren't. Which raises the question, even if low-level functioning like visual processing is so different because of cultural differences, how can we claim that psychology or behavioral science in general, based on studying a handful of people, is acceptable to everyone around the world? Yeah. Right? Right. Like, it just, reading all of this blew my mind. Like, I now want to go back and deconstruct all the things we've talked about and be like, hmm, this is Mm -hmm. actually based in Western or, like, the weird um, ideology. Yeah. Um, so this issue is also troubling because it is rooted in something even more worrisome. And we talked about this a little bit earlier on, but we've talked a lot about the participants and not much about the researchers themselves. A recent study tells us that three zip codes in the U.S. account for more than 50% of research published in the top five journals three zip codes three zip codes wow okay they also use participants from their own institutions and their own departments which can lead to additional interpretive bias because other cultures are then considered outliers for example initiations into adulthood are often considered quote-unquote exotic and therefore might never be studied by western Mm -hmm. um scholars Mm -hmm. dr Hines says Quote, we are, or we hope that researchers will come to realize just how precarious a position we're in when we're trying to construct universal theories from a narrow and unusual slice of the population, end quote. To address this issue, Hein and his colleagues suggest that journal editors and funding agencies encourage researchers to discuss the limitations of their samples and seek more representative study participants. In conclusion. <laughs> Finger up. Finger up. In conclusion, it is not a bad thing to be weird. Most of these studies do have some value, and they can tell us plenty about how college students think and behave. Some of these can be generalized to the rest of the weird population, but should not be used to generalize humanity as a whole. The good news is that many studies are now adding qualifiers such as, quote, in college population or, quote, in Western society. The virginity study concluded 
In sum, the present study provides strong evidence of the link between virginity loss and subsequent sexual functioning. This linkage represents an important step forward in understanding the development of adolescent sexuality. Though we know that the context is often lost in translation when many journalists and commenters easily assign the findings to the world population. But how can science call itself sci- or how can psychology call itself science of human behavior? if it studies only a select few. Wow, that's so interesting. I think, you know, it goes back to what we've talked about a hundred times where you, you have to you have to understand the full picture. Absolutely. Which a lot of times we don't take the time to do and that's fair and like you and I, I'm sure, have done that a thousand times on this podcast. Oh, for sure. Because we're just taking one tiny slice, right? And sometimes you don't even know. No, like, how could we possibly know? Right. You, I mean, to... Pick up a research study, especially one as complicated as, like, the Stanford Prison Experiment. And we, I remember talking about it, and we looked at it through, like, a moral lens and ethical mm-hmm. lens. And this, these are all men. How would it change if it passed the Bechtel test? Mm-hmm. Like, all of those things. But we didn't talk about it from, like, a, you know, these are also well-off... Um, Western. You know, developed, yeah, weird, uh, weird people, yeah. participants. So, um, no, I just I was so fascinated by this, and clearly went all the way down the rabbit hole. I love it. I think it's something we'll come back to. Oh, absolutely! Every episode for the rest of forever, probably. Because how could we not now? How could we not? Awesome! Great job. That was awesome. Thank you. All right, let's take a take a quick break, and when we come back, we are talking about history. Can't wait. And we're back. All right. You want to talk nerdy to me? I'm going to try, baby. All right. We're talking about Alcatraz. Fun, lighthearted, great. Light-heart- I know it's good. It's a good time. This was one of the ones I was like, it's been on my list forever, and I'm I'm just really excited to be to be talking about it. Are we going to talk about the time you went to the place and the thing? No, we can. Okay, I think we should. Whenever we get there, though, you're good. Okay. I also don't know if I know what you're talking about. The time where you went to Alcatraz. And, and didn't get proposed and to? And did not get proposed to. Yeah. You want to just go ahead and talk about it? So there was a time <laughs> that Allie went to Alcatraz with Ray. We think we've talked about this before. Did not get proposed to. Did not get... Carrie Ann's mad about it. I am. Missed I feel opportunity. Like it would have been a great <laughs> opportunity to propose... To you specifically. I know. It's about knowing, you know, the things. Read the room. Read the room. Know the audience. Instead, you can ask somebody... Do you think it's cold on that boat? That's right. And then we now have a pillow and, that says that. <laughs> and then propose to them in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, which is very sweet and romantic. Uh, but it's no Alcatraz. It's no Alcatraz. Don't tell Ray I said that. Well, he's going to hear it. Oh, good. <laughs> Ray, I still love you. Okay. So the United States Penitentiary, Alcatraz Island, also knows, known simply as Alcatraz, was a maximum security federal prison on Alcatraz Island off the coast of San Francisco, California. The prison was built in 1910, between 1910 and 1912, and was originally a army military prison. In 1933, the Department of Justice purchased the prison and it became a federal prison. 
They constructed an add-on to the military prison, which cost about twenty-five or two hundred fifty thousand U.S. dollars, or about seven million dollars today. I was hoping you had done the math. For I got me. you, girl. After construction was finished, it was the longest concrete building in the world at the time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, then it was transformed, you know, when it was transformed into the federal prison, it got a makeover. So they, r- like, ramped up the security measures. They're like, it's going to be a federal prison, so we've got this federal money. We're going to put some money into it, um, and, and which they did. Uh, it was state-of-the-art, basically, when they were done with it. With the new upgrades and the fact that it was an island surrounded by freezing cold water, it was said to be one of the most escape-proof facilities in America's strongest prison. It was the Titanic of prisons. <laughs> <laughs> Link there, up there. Yeah. There were four main cell blocks. There was the warden's office, a visitation room, the library, and the barber shop. Okay. Each prison cell measured nine feet by five feet and were seven feet tall. And the cells are right out in the open. If you ever go visit, one of the first things that you notice is, like, the complete lack of privacy. Um, yeah. In the cells, there's there's a bed, there's a desk, there's a wash basin, a toilet, and a blanket. But it's all out in the open. It's all, it's very, like, you can see, like, you walk into the room and, and you can see bars everywhere, but you can see straight through the bars into other bars. So, in terms of dignity and humanity... Yeah. Like, all was lost. Yeah, when you're taking a shit, everybody can see you. Correct. The prison was segregated, and they kept the black and brown prisoners separate from the white prisoners. The D-block housed the worst and most violent prisoners, and the six cells at the end were designated as the whole. The whole. The whole. That doesn't sound good. No. Brutal punishment followed once you were sent to the whole, and, and these prisoners were often deprived of things like sunlight. Hence, the hole. The hole. No sunlight. Got it. Sounds absolutely miserable and inhumane. Yeah. Um, On the main floor, you'll find the dining hall and the kitchen. The prisoners and the staff all ate together in the dining hall, which kind of looked like a little cafeteria. uh, And three meals a day were served and provided. The corridors were named after streets in major U.S. cities, including Broadway and Michigan Ave. Oh, The intention of Alcatraz was to host the worst uh, of the worst prisoners, which is ironic because most of the prisoners, they weren't murderers. Like when you, very few of them were. Hmm. Um, A lot of them, most of them were like bank robbers and counterfeiters and kind of crooks, but not necessarily (laughs) murderers. So not the worst of the worst then. Not the worst of the worst. I expected more murder. Sure. When we went, to be fair. That's a great line. I expect no serial more killers. Murder. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. That's surprising. Uh, although I said Ringo Starr was dead, so don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> so on <clears throat> on August 11th, 1934, the first 137 prisoners arrived from a prison in Kansas. They were transported by train and were guarded by 60 U.S. Marshals and FBI agents. Over the next few weeks, other prisoners joined, 15 from Washington State, and then more and more arrived from Atlanta, D.C., and other East Coast states. In total, uh, a year after it opened, 242 prisoners called Alcatraz their home. 
Alcatraz was the first of its kind, and the federal prison system used it as an example for what a prison should look like. They invested in electrical security systems, which, of course, overheated and had to be turned off regularly. Right. They were even able to look past some of the erosion issues that started occurring just one year after it opened. I mean, think about it. It's on it's a, it's on a rock in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> like, there's going to be saltwater erosion. Right. All the time. All the time. Maintenance is going to be a bitch. Oh, and it, it, expensive. In 1935, during the rainy season, a storm hit the island that resulted in several inches of rainfall. This caused a landslide on the island, and one of the buildings began to slide with it. Oh, shit. This showcased another issue that the prison would go through, structural shifting of the building over time. So they're doing great. Sounds like it. This prompted a series of structural changes and reinforcements on the island. This was an issue not only for the prisoners, but the guards and the staff who were building... uh, They were building a life on the island. So the people who worked there lived there. Mm -hmm. Because you can't, like, run out and grab milk when you're on Alcatraz. Right. There's no Uber. There's nothing. So in 1936, 52 families were living on the island, including 126 women and children. Really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yeah. I well, guess I just assume. I mean, it makes sense that families would live there too, but mm-hmm. I never once thought about it. I am not raising my kid on the island with a prison. No. That's that would not be ideal for me. Yeah. I'm um, also, the fact that this prison existed... Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a problem, so. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's not great. Prisons in general. Not a big fan. With the influx of people living on the island, they had water shortage issues. This was resolved quickly, however, by updating uh, the water tower. So they put a water good. tower in, which will come back later. Oh, not so good then. Uh, no, it's it's good. It's... it's Medium. It's neutral. Medium rare. It's it's, it's a neutral water tower. (laughs) Okay. It's mild. Um, In short, this place was soups expensive uh, to maintain. Uh, And between 1939 and 1940, a $1.1 million renovation took place. This included turning all of Block D into isolation cells. They're like, you know what we need? More isolation. More holes. More You can holes. never have too many holes, you know? In addition to already being on an island. Correct. Where there's no one else for you to talk to or Correct. do anything with. Quote, Alcatraz gained notoriety for its inception as the toughest prison in America, considered by many the world's most fearsome prison of the day. Former prisoners reported brutality and inhumane conditions, which severely tested their sanity. Et Wookie? was the first prisoner to die by suicide in Alcatraz. Refu Percival chopped off his fingers after grabbing an axe from the fire truck. Yikes. Wow. Begging another inmate to do the same to his other hand. One writer described Alcatraz as, quote, uh, the great garbage can of the San Francisco Bay, into which every federal prison dumped its most rotten apples, end quote. That sucks. That's a horrible... Reputation. I mean, ugh, gross. Okay, keep going. The prisoner's reputation was not helped by the arrival of more of, of America's most dangerous felons, including Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz, as he was known, in 1942. 
How'd he get that nickname? I think I might tell you. I can't remember. He entered the prison system at age 19 and never left, spending 17 years in Alcatraz. Stroud killed a guard and uh, tangled with other inmates and spent 42 of his 54 years in prison in solitary confinement. Fuck. Holy That's wild. shit. How... I, I'm just curious, like, how do you get to the point of assuming that someone being in solitary confinement, presumptively as a punishment, yeah. is going to do anything but make them less angry or more angry? Yeah. Like, a, it's a per- self-perpetuating cycle. We're going to put you in solitary, then let you back out. You're go- you have trauma now from being in solitary. You're going to act in a way that a person with trauma would act. Mm-hmm. And then you get put back into solitary. Yeah. That makes no damn sense. Despite its reputation, with many former inmates calling it Helcatraz, some prisoners reported that the living conditions were much better than most other prisons in the country, especially the food, and many volunteered to come to Alcatraz, which is fascinating. Interesting. On December 3rd, 1940, Harry Young murdered fellow inmate Rufus McCain. Running downstairs from the furniture shop to the tailor shop where McCain worked, Young violently stabbed McCain in the neck. McCain died five hours later. Young had been sent to Alcatraz for murder in 1933 and was later involved in an um, escape attempt during, uh, during which gangster Doc... Doc Barker was shot to death. So there is some murder. I misremembered that. (laughs) But still, surprisingly little based on what we now know about. People weren't coming in as. Yeah, there was less murder than I thought. Um, So he spent nearly 22 months in solitary confinement as a result, but was eventually permitted to work in the furniture shop. Young went to trial in 1941 with his attorney claiming that their client would not be held responsible for the murder since he had allegedly been subjected to cruel and unusual punishment by prison guards prior to the act. The trial brought Alcatraz into the spotlight again and not in a good, not in a good way, not in a good light. Ultimately, Young was convicted of manslaughter and his prison sentence was only extended by a few years. End quote. One of the most common things to talk about when you talk about Alcatraz are the escape attempts. See, this is where I was hoping we were headed. That's where we're... Girl, I got you. Alcatraz was not a fun place to be, so (laughs) I don't blame people for wanting to escape. I feel like you're putting it a little lightly there. (laughs) It was very difficult. It was a difficult building to get out of. But then again, once you get out of the building, you still have to conquer the water, right? Right. You're on a rock in the middle of nowhere. The prison also had a rule where prisoners were not allowed to speak to each other or at all. Fuck. This is inhumane. I know. Prisons in general, but this especially. So if I'm trying to think about how a prisoner thinks, what is more, like, what's more badass than escaping from the unsinkable Titanic prison, right? So now the prison states that during an... During its operation, the penitentiary had zero successful escapes. However, a total of 36 prisoners made 14 escape attempts. Two men attempted twice. 23 were caught. Six were shot and killed. And two drowned. And five were listed as missing and presumed drowned. 
So my math skills, especially on the fly, aren't great. Does that leave us with anyone who is successful? So three of these five men who were presumed drowned are the most notorious because they can't prove whether they made it or, or they not. didn't. And we'll, we'll cross that bridge here shortly. The most violent escape attempt occurred between May 2nd and 4th of 1946, when a failed attempt by six prisoners led to the Battle of Alcatraz, also known as the Alcatraz Blastout. Bernard Coy, Joseph Kretcher, Sam Shrockley, and Clarence Carnes, um, and two others, uh, took control of the cell house by overpowering correction corrections officers and were able to enter the weapons room because you need a weapons room. Gotta have a weapons room. Every prison should have a weapons room. Where they demanded keys to the outside recreation door. The quick-thinking guard, whose name was William Miller, turned over all but the key to the, out, to the outer door, which he pocketed. That's brilliant. Yep. The prisoner's aim was to escape by boat from the dock, but when they were unable to open the outside door, they decided to battle it out. They held Miller and a second guard hostage... And they, and prompted by Shockley and Thompson, Crutcher shot the hostage at very close range, which is not good. Not great. Don't kill the hostages, right? Right. They held Miller and a separate guard hostage. Pro- oh. Miller succumbed to his injuries while the prison guard, Harley Stit- Stites, uh, was also killed at the cell house. Although Shockley, Thompson, and Carnes returned to their cells, the other three, Coy, Kritzer, and Hubbard, persisted with their fight. The U.S. Marines intervened and killed the three prisoners. In this battle, apart from the guards and the prisoners killed, 17 other guards and one prisoner were also injured. Shockley, Thompson, and Carnes were tried for the killing of the corrections officers, Shockley and Thompson were sentenced to death in a gas chamber, which was carried out at San Quentin in December of 1948. However, Carnes, who was only 19 years of age, was given a second life sentence. Hate it. Hate all of it. All right, so let's get to the guys. Let's get to the ones that got away. Yeah, let's do that. So on June 11th, 1962, Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin attempted to escape during... Uh, using careful planning. These men were all housed together in cell block B. Cell block tango? I have in my note, I wrote this so long ago, I have these motherfuckers chipped away at the concrete. (laughs) (laughs) It's like prison break. It is. They chipped away at the concrete uh, that was damaged by the sea erosion and chipped through the wall into the air vent that led to a corridor. So It's exactly like prison break. Yeah, I've never seen that, but... Oh, great show. You should definitely watch. Like the first the first season at least is really good. Guess what they used? Uh spoon. Yeah. Really? Yes. Man, I'm good at this guessing yeah. thing. They used spoons and they made some type of electrical drill with a stolen vacuum cleaner motor. Huh. No one heard that? Huh? No one heard that amidst the silence of not talking? I guess not. Who knows? Maybe they had during the drum circle. Who knows? <laughs> um, so how did... Oh, I have that next. How did they get away with the sound, you may be asking yourself. That's exactly <laughs> what I was asking myself. Well, the Did in- you write these notes for me specifically? <laughs> <I didn't. laughs> 
Well, the inmates did their digging exclusively during music hour. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> Where the other prisoners were playing the accordion. Oh, you were so close. They also covered up the, the process of the hole by covering it up with a false wall. This is like cartoon shit. Yeah. Yes, it is. Quote, the escape route led through a fan vent. The prisoners removed the fan and the motor, replacing them with the steel grill and leaving a, sh- a shaft large enough uh, for a prisoner to enter. A shaft large enough for a prisoner to enter, if you know what I mean. Title of a sex tape. Stealing a uh, a carburetum abrasive cord from the prisoner's workshop. I don't know what that is. Me either. The prisoners then removed the rivets from the grill. In their bl- in their beds, they placed paper mache dummies made with human hair stolen from the barber shop. So they really went to a they, lot of effort. They here. really did. This is like they a- got arts and crafts involved. They utilized music time. It's a performance. They art were piece. resourceful. Yeah. Over many weeks, the escapees also made an inflated raft from over fifty stolen raincoats. Shut up! Like. Where the fuck do you get 50 (laughs) raincoats and no one notices? I don't know. And how do you sneak them out with you? I'm clear. I don't know. I have so many more questions. So 50 stolen raincoats, um, which they prepared on the top of the cell block, uh, concealed from the guards by sheets, which had been put over over the side. So it's just, it's like how they pulled this off. Almost absurd. Yeah. Yeah. They escaped through the vent into the onto the roof and de- and departed Alcatraz. Uh, if that's not straight out of a movie, I don't know what is. Yeah. So the bodies were never discovered, uh, but they were presumed to have drowned in the icy cold waters of the bay. It was about one and a quarter miles to shore, and the water temperatures could have been between fifty to fifty-five degrees. Okay, that's not too bad. Some circ um, some. Um, I say that like I'm going to go swimming in 50 know, to 55 right? degree water. So At least it's above freezing. Yeah. Some circumstantial evidence came about in the early 2010s stating that a raft was discovered on Angel Island, which with footprints leading away from the, from the, from the boat. Wait, in what year? This was discovered in 2010s, but that uh, was saying shortly after the escape. Oh, okay. I was about to say, how were there still footprints? No, no. Because that's <laughs> one of them hole. was Jesus's. <laughs> uh, that same night in 1955, a blue Chevrolet had been stolen by three men. So, Ooh. I'll let you decide. I have decided that that was likely them. Yes, I'm yeah, going to say that's it's my correct. decision. So, by the 1950s, it is said that the condition of Alcatraz became a little more bearable. Inmates were allowed some small comforts, such as watching movies on the weekends, painting, and even speaking. So they probably didn't get to watch Oh Brother Where Art Thou, if probably I had not. to guess. But also that didn't come out until. That's true. I was just recently. thinking of like three inmates running away. Oh, yeah. Giving very Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah. They didn't want FOP, goddammit. <laughs> so despite its small progress, Alcatraz was still the most expensive prison in the country, like to maintain. In 1959, a report was published that indicates that the facility was three times more expensive than another, like any other average prison. 
Hmm. Because of the $5 million needed to fix some of the structural damages, it was considered a lost cause. Paired with the scandalous escape of the three men in the early 1960s, Alcatraz was officially a problem child of the U.S. prison system. Alcatraz closed its doors on March 21, 1963, and it's now a museum. One of the first things you notice when you get off the boat to Alcatraz is that there is, um, that there's the water tower and it is spray painted. And you'll also notice that there's spray paint of, in other areas of the, of the island. What's spray painted on it? So it says, peace and freedom, welcome to the home of the free Indian land. And then on the other side, it says, free Indian land, Indians welcome. Beginning on November 20th, 1969, a group of Native Americans called United uh, Indians of All Tribes, mostly college students from San Francisco, occupied the island to protest federal uh, policies related to American Indians. Some of them were children of Native Americans who had relocated to the city as part of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Indian Termination Policy which was a series of laws and policies aimed to aimed at the assimilation of Native Americans into mainstream U.S. society. It encouraged Native Americans to move away from the Indian reservations and into cities to take advantage of the health, educational, and employment opportunities. A number of the employees of the Bureau of Indian Affairs also occupied Alcatraz at that time, including Doris Purdy, um, an amateur photographer who later uh, produced footage of her stay on the island. The occupiers who stayed on the island for nearly two years demanded that the island's facilities be adapted and new structures built for the Indian Education Center, Ecology Center, and Cultural Center. The American Indians claimed that the island, by provisions of the Treaty of Fort Laramie, in 1868 between the U.S. and the Sioux, they said that the treaty promised to return all retired, abandoned, and out-of-use federal lands to the Native people from whom they were acquired. So at this point, you know, Alcatraz isn't being used. Right. And so, yeah, they're saying that based on this treaty and this agreement that they had, this was their land. I mean, we are all living on stolen land, so. Correct. Though it would be shitty to be living on stolen land and to return the stolen land to the peoples, but have a horrible prison on it. Not great. Not a good relationship <laughs> building tool, I don't think. Quote, Indians of all tribes claimed Alcatraz Island by the rights of discovery. Um, as historian Troy R. Johnson states in The Occupation of Alcatraz Island, generations of indigenous people knew about Alcatraz at least 10,000 years before any European knew about any part of the country. Including, begun by urban Indians of San Francisco, the occupation attracted other Native Americans from across the country, including the American Indian movement, uh, urban activism from Minneapolis. The Native American, de the Native Americans demanded reparations for their many treated, for their many treaties broken by the U.S. government and for the lands that were taken from them. During the 19 months and nine days of the occupation by the American Indians, several buildings at Alcatraz were damaged or destroyed by fire, including the lighthouse uh, and the lighthouse keeper's home. The warden's home, the officer's club, um, the recreation hall and the Coast Guard's quarters. 
The origin of the fires is disputed. They don't know who did it. The U.S. government demolished a number of other buildings, mostly apartments, after the occupation had ended. Graffiti from that period of Native American occupation is still visible on many locations of the island. Um, which I think is really great that they kept it because yeah. it's very much a part of the, the, history, the, hist- yeah. uh, the history of the island. During the occupation, President Richard Nixon um, rescinded the Indian termination policy designed by early administrations to end federal recognition of many tribes and their special relationships with the U.S. government. He established a new policy of self-determination in part as a result of the publicity and awareness created by the occupation. And the occupation ended on June 11th, 1971, end quote. You can visit Alcatraz, and I highly suggest that you do. It's one of the coolest things to do in San Francisco. It was one of the funnest things I've done. We have a lot of cute pictures, which maybe we can share on our close friends group on Instagram. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But it's like the island itself has like a really interesting energy because... It's surround. It's such a beautiful landscape, but it's such a sad space. Yeah. Right. And it's just it's it's a weird combination of things because the island was a prison, but it was a home to the people that worked there. Right. And then you know then there was the occupation later. So it's it's a very complex piece of history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's Alcatraz, baby. So much nuance. I had no idea about the um, Native Americans and indigenous people and the occupation. Like, that was fascinating. Yeah. Very cool. So I think maybe the intersections here could be the handpicking of information. Ooh, okay. I think I was leaning towards the, like, Western ideals and values that we hold that are so different than the rest of the world and how that informs our policing and um, prison systems. Yeah. Like, nowhere else in the world has the amount of um, incarcerated individuals that we have in the U.S. Yeah. Or looks at incarceration the same way. hmm So I was just thinking of, like, the Western values and... Like, what, how that plays out in different ways. No, I think that's great. I think that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well done, my friend. Very, very cool. Really deep topics today. I know. Like, we went, we went hard. I know. We did the damn thing. We did do the damn thing. All right, so stay tuned next week. We're going to be drinking some cocktails. And I personally cannot wait. If you guys, if you subscribe to Patreon between now and next week, you could be drinking them with us. In fact, you should. We would love to have you. And tune in on our Instagram and let us know what you're drinking. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.